Well, good morning. I'm excited to share with you or continue our journey in these keys to a blessed life. I think it's an exciting weekend at Crosswinds, though. We have to make sure we mention that as we consider the video and the new um, opportunities that are available here as we continue to pour into kids and families and to help you to know that that is our desire here at Crosswinds as we move forward. So I am one of the staff members who's very excited, as we all are, as we watch this transition and this new uh, time period take place in our Crosswinds family. So we do. We continue in our series, Keys to a Blessed Life. Uh, last week, um, Craig, Pastor Craig taught us about what it means, this key that I become less as Christ becomes greater in my life. The tension he explained really comes into play between what God has already accomplished and then the responsibility of his people to obey. And we're taking these different um, messages. They've all been influenced by our small circle one-to-one circle -one discipleship material. It's the material that we use here at Crosswinds as part of our discipleship pathway. If you don't know about that one-to-one -one discipleship, it's an amazing opportunity where two people join together to begin to travel that journey at a deeper level. This weekend, we're going to continue as we take the next step and dig deeper and begin to look at what it means to worship our God with an undivided devotion. So what do we mean by that word devotion? It means giving our full attention, our full loyalty, being completely faithful to, even going so far as to say giving our fullest love to something or someone. If we're devoted to that thing, we are all in, if you will. As I began to study this in scripture and consider what it means to give God my undivided devotion, again and again, scripture described it to me as giving your whole heart, giving your whole heart. And so we're going to travel through scripture a bit to see what this idea of this undivided attention, this undivided devotion in this whole heart means in our lives and what it meant in the life of those who came before us. Because this whole heart, as it reads in scripture, is completely um, important to God. And if it's very important to God, then it should be very important to us as well. Now, unfortunately, there are many things that vie for our attention, for our loyalty, for our faithfulness, for our love, and that leaves us not wholehearted, right? It leaves us divided. We become divided in our devotion. So let's look first at what that means. What are the consequences of trying to live a life through those motivations of a divided heart? So this is what I began to learn. A divided heart limits every aspect of our life. We can't go in one direction if we're pulled in two. So it limits every aspect of our life. We're limited in our true understanding of God. We're limited in our ability to live a life of freedom that God offers us. We are limited in our ability to experience that true peace, contentment, found only through Jesus. This divided heart cannot be faithful to one because it leads us in opposing directions, which leads us to doubt one side or the other. 
Listen to what James has to say about this. This is in James chapter one, starting in verse six. He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. How can we truly invest our heart and soul in what our heart and soul is divided on? But the struggle we too often experience is that it's hard for us to see our double-mindedness, our unstable ways. We, we have a difficult time seeing those within ourselves. And so my first point is that the telltale signs of a divided heart are easy to recognize but hard to see. Well, that certainly sounds contradictory, doesn't it? Let's take it one step further. A divided heart is easy to recognize in others but hard to see in ourselves. It's like anything else. It's easy for me to give advice to a friend, or dare I say a spouse, where is my husband, <laughs> right? But that same advice can take us back when it is headed in my direction. Our intention may be pure, but if we aren't all in, we're only seeing half of the picture we're divided. So imagine planning a vacation to Disney World, right? You get the hotel, you get the plane tickets, your suitcases are packed. You've even sat down with the kids and decided what rides you're going to hit first, which of those places you want to go to and what you're most excited about. But you never leave the house. It doesn't make any sense. Your plans and your intentions were all on board, but your actions did not reflect your plans. The same way, if I am only half in, then I am also half out. And it takes my mind in too many directions because our life is shaped by what preoccupies our mind. Do I want to be half in, meaning I'm also half out? Paul tells us there's a better solution. We turn now to Galatians chapter 5 and starting in verse 16. He says, but I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you may want to do. Those who live by the Spirit will not be perfect, but they are willingly and obediently being perfected. This transformation does not come without a willingness to also be molded. I was reminded of the sun. When the sun beats down on clay, it hardens it. But when the sun beats down on the snow and ice that we've got out there, it melts it, right? The Holy Spirit longs to soften our resolve to follow Jesus. But sometimes we find our heart as that hardened clay, unwilling to be softened to his will, unwilling to be molded into the person that he desires for us to be. So instead, we choose our own path. We put other priorities or idols, if you will, above our devotion to God. Paul talks about this in the letter to Romans. In this letter, at this point, he's giving the people a warning because he knows that some of them have been unfaithful. So there's a warning coming. This is in chapter 1, starting at verse 22. 
He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worship and served the creature or themselves rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Some of the people were exchanging the truth of God for idols, which means their heart was definitely divided and inch by inch, it took them down a very dangerous path. When we think of idols, we may imagine the golden calf, right? That was made by those Israelites as they wandered in the desert. Or in Paul's day, in different cultures, different idols were made of wood and of stone, depending on the individual's particular need. You could go anywhere and buy an idol that would meet your particular needs. Now, we may not see it, but we bow down to idols in our life today as well. Those idols may not take the form of wood or metal. We may not go and buy those idols, but they will take root in our heart. Paul's readers were exchanging the truth of God for their own wants and their own desires. Now, the metal and the wood and the stone statues were just representations of their misguided desires of their heart. It was a problem of a divided heart. Here's the ironic part. God knows our heart. He knows when we are divided. He knows when we have replaced him with our own desires. He knows when we have taken even a good thing. And this is hard to balance. The good things like a successful career, like love, like material possessions, even family, kids and grandkids and spouse and friends, even our family and turned them into ultimate things or obsessions. Our hearts give these obsessions a place of honor in the center of our lives because maybe we think that those are the things that give us significance. Maybe we think that those are the things that give us security and safety and fulfillment and joy and contentment. And they do, given the right place in our heart, not the ultimate place in our heart. So know that even these good things can easily become counterfeit gods, inch by inch, if we're not careful. I think it's very tricky because we are tempted for that quick, that better fix, right? It's easy to trade the eternal peace, the eternal contentment that the Lord provides for us for temporary satisfactions that we feel we need in any given moment. And that's where the real tragedy lies. Because we've been created in the image of God, yet we desire to rely on another source for guidance, for happiness, for purpose. But that's not how it was meant to be. God desires that we would have a singleness of heart and action. A singleness of heart and action. And the Lord reveals his plan, this singleness of heart, to the people, even through the book of Jeremiah, the prophet. I love it because we can go to the Old Testament and we can go to the New Testament. We can go throughout history and see God's plan taking shape. The nation of Judah at this time was on the brink of defeat. The people had a long history of following their own ways. Warning after warning had come their way, but their hearts were like clay, 
hardened and divided. They were on a path to destruction and the, the, the dis- tragedy is they were missing it. They couldn't even see it. But finally the end would come for them as they were to be carried off to a foreign land. Their homes decimated, their families separated, their temple pillaged. And in the midst of their despair, due to some of their own unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. He still loves them. He still desires that they would turn to him. He still gives them hope. Now the people were a generational people. Their ancestry was very important. In fact, it spoke of where they came from and it spoke of who they were. It was a part of their identity as God's people. And we read that in scripture, right? As we go through whose father was whose and whose child was whose and who this. We read that as we read their genealogies throughout scripture. Although many in this generation would be carried away from their homes, God would protect a remnant for the future. God promises them that he is not finished with them. He will remain faithful, and it will be evident in their future generations. Their history has been long, right? From Abraham to slavery under Pharaoh to wandering in the wilderness, but God has brought them through all of it, and he promises this will not be the end either of God's people. God prophesies through Jeremiah of a time to come He says, for their future generations. This is what he says in Jeremiah. I'm going to skip down to a few verses. The first one he says, this is in chapter 31, verse 31. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Something new is going to happen. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And then we move to chapter 32 and verse 38. He says, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. God would remain faithful to his promises. These promises were foretold through the prophets. And the new covenant spoke of was fulfilled in Jesus. And the undivided devotion is lived out through his Holy Spirit that lives within us. God is faithful always to draw us back to him, even when we are divided. I love what we sang this morning. We sing hallelujah because the lamb has overcome. An undivided heart is motivated by God's will is empowered by the Holy Spirit and is recognized by your love. The Gospel of John, I think, helps bring this to light for us, gives us a fuller understanding on this truth. We read in chapter 14 where Jesus teaches the disciples about what is to come. His body broken, his blood poured out for them so that we could have the freedom. A hard concept to understand but so key to their future with him. He goes on and he teaches them that he may be leaving earth in the physical form, but he wasn't going to leave them on their own again. He's faithful. This is in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again, first he reminds them, be faithful. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, but it is not because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you and he will be 
in you. And he goes on a little further down. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The promise of God way back in Jeremiah is being revealed and is being fulfilled. He would call his people back, and so he did. John chapter 14 teaches us that an undivided heart is possible because we have the Holy Spirit within us, empowering us and guiding us, transforming us to God's will. Transformation, however, means change, right? And change usually encounters conviction before it is complete. Conviction, right? That sense of recognizing that something is wrong. It's an inward work of God as he transforms the heart of the believer toward a better and deeper understanding of him. Listen to what Max Lucado says as he writes about conviction. He says, conviction of sin is one of the rarest things that ever strikes a man. It is the threshold of an understanding of God. Jesus Christ said that when the Holy Spirit came, he would convict of sin. And when the Holy Spirit rouses a man's conscience and brings him to the presence of God, it is not his relationship with men that bothers him, but his relationship with God. Remember David as he wrote, against you only you I have sinned. The marvel... Lucado writes, is the conviction of sin, forgiveness, and holiness. The marvel is that they are so interwoven that it's only the forgiven man who is the holy man. He proves he is forgiven by being the opposite of what he was. By God's grace, repentance, he writes, always brings a man to this point, admitting I have sinned. The surest sign that God is at work is when a man says that and means it. Man, how true is that? Yet, how hard is that? I have two stories I want to share with you this morning uh, from Scripture. One from the very beginning of time. And one from Jesus' interaction with his people. So for the first story, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 4, to the story of Cain and Abel. Now they were brothers whose parents were the first on earth, Adam and Eve, but they were different in many ways too. Cain was the firstborn and he was a farmer. Abel was the next son that we read about and he was a shepherd, both honorable professions, both necessary in their livelihood. <clears throat> Let me start with you at verse three in chapter four. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. What does this teach us? Cain brought an offering of the first fruit of the ground. Abel brought the best of the flock, the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. Was Cain a little indifferent about his offering? while Abel was careful about his. Commentators note that the fat and the firstborn meant that Abel gave God the very best pick of his flock that he could. The difference in this case is a heart attitude. Cain, maybe, came to God in his own self-prescribed terms. I will give you first fruits, but Abel came to God on God's terms. I will give you the best. 
Cain's spirit was divided, self and God. Abel's was fully devoted to God. The giveaway to Cain's sinful attitude was his countenance, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. Now Cain could have taken God's disapproval, his offering kind of as um, a loving, a grace-filled opportunity for correction because he knew God, he had walked with God, he knew the love of God. He knew that that love was present with him. He could have humbly admitted his error and asked for God's forgiveness, but we don't read that. He did not. The Lord says to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, its desires contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God tries to guide Cain. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Great warning. I love the way God does it. He personifies, if you will, sin as this animal, this, this um, ferocious beast that's going to crouch and get after Cain. And if Cain didn't master it, if he didn't rule over it, Cain would be its victim rather than Cain having the opportunity to overcome it. Again, we see the Lord is warning his people as he warns Cain. Sin's desire is contrary to your true purpose. God is always drawing us to himself, to the people we could be through his love and grace if we would only follow him with a whole heart, undivided. Now God wasn't upset at the type of offering because he had given each man those gifts and he had given them the opportunity and the ability to fulfill those gifts, right? Rather, he knew the heart of the brothers. Remember, he knows our heart. He knew that one was all in and he knew that one was divided. Now, we can't miss the fact that God had told Cain he must rule over it. In some versions, again, we see that word master over it. But what does this tell us? Tells us it tells us that it's not impossible to conquer that sin with God and for us today with the Holy Spirit within us. It is not impossible. Cain could have conquered the, maybe it was rage, the resentment that he was feeling, but Cain chose a different avenue. The sin crouching did pounce and Cain fell to it. We know the story, Cain would call his brother to the field and take his life. There's a reason we don't give self priority over God, right? But I think I need to clarify so you don't get me wrong. You are valuable to God. You are important and loved, but when you put self above God, you are headed for a fall. Now Cain would have to work the ground and it would no longer yield its strength to him. He would be a fugitive and he would be a wanderer. Cain began to really understand the pain of the choices that he had made because this is what God says to him. Or this is what he says to God. My punishment is greater than I can bear. The Lord had driven him from the ground. His punishment was greater than he could bear. The ground was all that he knew, farming, that's what he did from the start. And then the Lord's face would be hidden from him. But I think there's also one thing uh, that we have to take from this story. Cain was still about himself. He was afraid that if someone saw him, they would do the same to him as he did to his brother. He was afraid they would take his life. Now it gets real, right? God created life and Cain took it. 
but remember, the Lord is love and the Lord is grace, even alongside the justice that must be carried out. So what does the Lord say? He says, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold, and the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. The Lord has love and grace alongside justice. We go back to Max Lucado. Conviction of sin is one of the rarest things that ever strikes a man. It is the threshold of understanding of God. And when the Holy Spirit rouses a man's conscience and brings him into the presence of God, it is not his relationship with men that bothers him, but his relationship with God. Now, I can't claim to know all of Cain's thoughts and fears, but the story tells us that as he left that day, he was banned from all he knew. And the focus did not seem to be regret over the death of his brother or the sin that he had committed against God. Rather, it was fear for his own safety and for his own future. His idol was self. His heart was divided, God and self. But there's another story as we move forward in the New Testament. This is found in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is invited to dine at Simon the Pharisee's house. And I want to provide some cultural context for you so you can understand the story as we move forward. As an invited guest, normally you would be greeted at the door with a kiss. Now the paths were dusty and dirty, and so that invited guest would also get their feet washed by a servant upon entering. An invited guest to the home of a Pharisee would also have his head anointed with oil. And so in walks Jesus, receiving none of these common courtesies. And so we wonder, what was Simon's motive here? What was his heart motivation as he invited Jesus to dine? Now, cultural references would also tell us that dinner parties were often an open door. Not that anybody could join in the meal, but they could join in listening to the conversation that would take place. And so the scene goes on. This, verse, this starts in verse 37. And behold. I love that because it's a strong word to say, pay attention. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Let me draw your attention here to that woman's heart. In she walks, a woman, a sinner. She bows down to anoint Jesus' feet with oil, and in the midst, her tears get the best of her, Right? So apparently, maybe she had experienced that forgiveness from Jesus. She had experienced that forgiveness from Jesus. Was she crying because of deep gratitude? Was she crying because she saw the way Jesus, her Savior, was being treated in Simon's house? Was she just crying because she was overwhelmed? And so, with no towel ready, she unloosed her hair and she washes her tears away from Jesus' feet, something reserved for a slave, and something culturally very unacceptable. Did she worry about man's opinion? Apparently not. Her focus was on God, the one who was in front of her. Simon the Pharisee did not have a good reaction to this event. But more important, what was Jesus' reaction? We, re we read on in verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, 
Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. There I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven because she loved much. But who is forgiven little, loves little. Again, let's go back to what Max Lucado says. Conviction of sin is one of the rarest things that strikes a man. It is the threshold of understanding of God. When the Holy Spirit rouses a man's conscience and brings him into the presence of God, it is not his relationship with men that bothers him, but his relationship with God. These stories reflect two different hearts. One, Cain, divided, arrogant, separated by his own need for self preservation, focused on self and headed to destruction. One who's all in, humble, motivated by her deep understanding and gratitude of who Jesus was and what he had done for her, devoted to God. So we have to ask the question ourselves, will we choose devotion to Jesus? Because your yes answer will require more of you than you have ever given before yet it will provide you the truest joy you can ever experience. God is faithful, and his spirit continues with us every step of the way, but we must be willing. Here at Crosswinds, our mission is to know God and to make him known, both crucial to our faith and crucial to our understanding, to know God and to make him known. One more note from Max Lucado regarding what it means to know Jesus. He writes that we must travel with him. And this is possible through his Holy Spirit and through his word. This is what he says. He, he says we must follow his sandal prints. We must sit on the cold hard floor of the cave in which he was born. We must smell the sawdust of the carpentry shop. We must hear his sandals slap the hard trails of Galilee. We must sigh as we touch the healed sores of the leper. We must smile as we see his compassion with the woman at the well. And we must let our voices soar with praises of the multitude. Undivided devotion is directly born from an undivided heart as we travel with him through his word. And it's not something we can conquer on our own, but we don't have to because it's the Holy Spirit within us that gives us the ability for that transformation, that gives us the ability to accept the changes that need to be made in our life. Undivided devotion is treating God as the main source, not an accessory that we choose to use at our will. Undivided devotion is backing up my commitment to Jesus with my life. Undivided devotion confronts the sin in my life and does it knowing that a love that is much stronger and sweeter than I could ever muster is with me. Undivided devotion takes all that we knew and believed and leaves it behind for the truth of God. And what I love is we have real pictures of this undivided devotion by stories from those who walked with him. Let me give you a few of their comments. Thomas, the doubter, acknowledged him as he cried with confidence, my Lord and my God. John wanted everybody to know as he declared, we have seen his glory. The two on the road to Emmaus rejoiced as they realized we're not 
Were not our hearts burning with us as he talked? And then we have Peter who said it best when he spoke of his presence. He said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. These people knew Jesus in the flesh. They walked with him, they talked with him, they learned from him, they laughed with him, they mourned with him. It was a powerful thing to be in the presence of Jesus. And it still is, and we still are. So will we choose to change? Remember God's promise way back in the Old Testament. He will give them one heart and a new spirit. He will put in them. They shall be his people and he will be their God. They will walk in his statutes and keep and obey his rules. They will return with their whole heart. And so we go back to the start of our message. And we look not at what a divided heart struggles with, but now we look at what a whole heart can do. A whole heart unleashes every aspect of our life. We have access to a true understanding of God, providing the ability for us to live a life of freedom that he offers and allowing us the opportunity to experience the true peace, the true contentment, the true joy that is found only through Jesus. Undivided of devotion, it changes everything about me. It changes everything about you. We are no longer traveling in two directions. It takes the promises that we read as we journey through scripture and applies those promises to me, applies those promises to my life and to your life. And so we come to a place where we have to accept Jesus, accept those promises, begin the journey with him. And so we have to ask the question, have we done that? Are you in a place where you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Maybe you're in a place where you've accepted him, but your action isn't looking like your desires, like the Disney World trip. You haven't left the house. Wherever you are in your journey today, we want to walk alongside you as you take the next step of faith, as Jesus brings you closer to him. I've asked Ethan to begin our time of closing prayer with a scripture from Ephesians. And he's going to read that to us. And I ask that we would just bow our heads and listen to God's word and allow that to sink into our hearts. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask for and think according to the power at work within us to him be the glory and the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen and so Lord we come before you reading your promises in your word would you help us, Lord, uh, to move forward with that undivided devotion, with an undivided heart, as we de desire to know you more, Lord, so that we can take that and we can share you with others. I thank you that we are not alone in this. 
I thank you that you have placed your spirit within us to guide and direct us, to give us conviction in that transformation process. And so, Lord, for those of you who maybe for the very first time, Lord, are taking that step of faith to accept you, we lift them up to you, Lord. We praise you and we thank you that you have called us and you never stop calling us to that closer relationship with you. We love you, Lord, and we lift this up to you in Jesus' name.